How fitting today that on March 16th, that's what today is, you know, 316, that we are looking at the loving nature of God. Now you say, why is it important that we're looking at the loving nature of God on March 16th? Well, what better verse that talks about the loving nature of God than John 3:16? You ever thought about that? I mean, it succinctly encapsulates God's loving nature. And here's what it says, in fact. I want you to read this with me. You won't need to read it because you probably know it. A lot of you, this was the very first verse you learned, wasn't it? As a little tyke somewhere, maybe in who knows what city and what state, you learned this verse. Say it with me, would you? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you combine that with what we read earlier, when Marty showed us First uh, John 4 9, I believe it was, you begin to see that, that God showed His love when He did what? When He gave. Both verses show us that, that God gave because He loved. So I want to make a statement to you as we dig in further to Isaiah here in a little bit. The greatest proof of God's loving nature is Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say this to you. If He never did anything else for you, if He never did one other act of goodness, He would be forever loving because He gave Jesus. Jesus is proof positive beyond all doubt that God is a loving God. Are you with me? So I think it's neat that on 3.16, we can use 3.16 to springboard into a better understanding of Jesus. If He's the greatest gift that God has ever given, if He's proved positive that God is a loving God, where do we look in Isaiah to see a picture of Jesus? Well, Isaiah 53 is where we land. Will you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53? It's our chapter in focus today. We've jumped ahead a good bit in our series, primarily to understand more about Palm Sunday and Christ's sacrifice, and that's why we'll be going back once Easter is over and kind of revisiting some chapters previous to this one. If you're new here or just visiting, I would encourage you maybe to go online and pick up um, one of our leadership guides to this current series. It's called Captured by His Character. This is a discussion guide primarily for our small group leaders, but I'd encourage you perhaps you can pick it up, you can download it and print it. It should be a problem. Uh, it will give you some insight into what we've discussed so far and what we've learned about God through Isaiah. We've so far seen six character traits of God as outlined in Isaiah. He's holy. He is uh, sovereign. He's, uh, he chastens. We've looked at several of them. And today we come to another chapter that, that relays for us a character trait of God. Something we can know about God. And that is His loving nature as revealed in Isaiah 53. And i got to tell you, Isaiah 53 paints an awesome picture of Jesus. Because remember, as I said, He is the proof that God is a loving God. Amen? So the more we know about Jesus, it would only then mean that we would know more about how loving God is. So we're going to learn a lot about Jesus today. I've been looking forward for several weeks, and especially this week, to preaching this message. You know, some messages, I love preaching anytime, anywhere. 
But when you get to preach a whole day about Jesus, and, and I think we do every week, but there's just some weeks you focus even more intensely on Jesus. And I tell you, I told you last night, we were uh, sitting up in bed and just talking, and I said, honey, I get to talk all day tomorrow about Jesus. Not, you know, something about finances or, or marriage. And those are important, and they have their place. But man, today, all about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So I'm pretty pumped up right now. You know what I'm saying? I know you are too. Let's see what Isaiah tells us about Jesus and what we learn from that about God's loving nature. Isaiah 53, 1. He begins with a rhetorical question, which is actually a continuation. Now, now follow me here. Your Bibles are open. Your brains are in high gear here. It's actually a continuation of verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52. He's actually making some, some statements here that, that, that you know what? Who's going to really believe that this is Jesus? He was disfigured. He was marred. And so in light of that, he says in 53.1, Who has believed our message? Or, or to whom has the arm of the Lord... Would you underline that phrase? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And, and perhaps a... I don't want to say a better translation, but maybe help you understand this phrase. You could translate this also as if, Who could have ever believed that this was the arm of the Lord? In other words, he's saying this, what you saw in the humanness of Jesus when he was disfigured at his crucifixion, when he was marred, when he was beyond recognition, that was truly the arm of Yahweh. The word Lord there is Jehovah Yahweh. That's God revealed. And he's asking this question, who would have ever thought that was the case? That's why he says, who's going to believe this? And then he begins to talk about... um, this Jesus that's been revealed as the arm of the Lord. In fact, let me show you a good way to understand Isaiah. If you'll circle the word he every time you see it mentioned, it's mentioned about 20 plus times, okay? He is an intensive pronoun here in this chapter. And if you'll circle each one of them, what I did in my Bible was I circled all the he's and I drew a line to connect them. And you'll begin to see how the chapter unfolds. It is all about Jesus and all about him and how He gave His life for us, and how, how He showed us the nature of, of, of a loving God. This word, He, refers to Jesus. And by the way, He is the arm of the Lord. Amen? Now, that leads me to say this, as we understand more about Jesus. These first three verses show us that He was historically human. You're going to see this in these first three verses. But yet, He was divinely God. For instance, let's read a few verses here in the beginning of Isaiah 53. It says he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Speaks there of his early years, of his, of his young life. The words grew up, meaning that he was once a boy. He was born. He was, he was raised. It says that he was like a root out of dry ground. Speaking there of his ancestry and how he was traceable. You know, much like a plant has a, has a bud and then a stem and then you can trace its roots. In other words, Jesus Christ was historical. It's not a negative thing to say he was historically human. He was uh, an actual real person in time and space. And Isaiah here is prophesying that there will be a human who will come, who will, who will be, in one sense, unrecognizable. You won't see him for who he really is. He's going to be just pretty ordinary. In fact, look what he says in the next few verses. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. One common hitter said that Jesus Christ had nothing special physically about his appearance. 
Now that may sound somewhat irreverent, like man. But the truth is, Philippians 2 echoes this. He was just made in the likeness of men. Someone asked me one time, how would we know it if Jesus Christ came today? He would look a lot like everybody in this room. And in that culture, he came as just a normal man. He talks here about his appearance, how he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Look at the end of verse 3. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And then the Bible says this, and we esteemed him not. Do you see that word? Circle it, would you? It's a real key word in these first three verses to help us understand his humanity. Listen very carefully. It's an accounting word. And in the Hebrew culture, it would refer to the end of your calculations. And here's what these verses tell us. That on the outside, he looked very normal. And so the average person never really calculated. They never added up who he really was. When the story was all told and he was 33 years old, they said, well, good, we're done with that man who was kind of crazy and claimed to be God. They did not really calculate who he really was. You with me? Man, they were in the presence of deity. He was in the form of a man named Jesus, but it was God in a bod. And they never understood it. They didn't esteem it or calculate it. And, and, and I want to make sure you understand something. That odd mix, his historical humanity, and yet his, his divinity, his deity, are two important fundamental elements of our doctrine. We at First Family believe that Jesus Christ is God. He's not just a part of God. He's not just a, a good man from God. He is 100% God. And you say, well, Todd, we've known that. We've been attending here. You're right. And that's why we're going to keep saying that. Because doctrine matters. Are you with me? It's fundamental to our actions and, and how we preach and what we believe. Now listen very carefully. The virgin birth here really rises as, 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 very, as something really critical. For he could not be exclusively God had he had an earthly father. You know that, right? In other words, the fact that he was born of a woman, he was completely human, is very important. But he bypassed the sin nature because the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and conceived in her God's Son. So he was all man because he was born of a woman, but he was all God because he didn't have an earthly father. So guess what? That makes him exclusively, listen church, listen, exclusively and uniquely qualified to get you to heaven. Because guess what? He's all God, and He's all man. He's the only one like that. He's exclusive. That's why John 3.16 says, God sent His one and only. And even a more literal Greek translation would be, His only one of a kind. You see, all of the great rulers, all of the great men, they've got one thing that flaws them. They've got a human father. Jesus, his father, was God. So that's why I encourage you, if, if, if you're not getting to heaven through Jesus, I've got to be honest with you, you're not getting to heaven. There's only one train going to heaven, and it's captained by Jesus. Amen? See, he was historically human, and yet he was divinely God. That mixture qualifies him as the only one able to save. 
That's Jesus. There's nobody like Him. Amen? And Isaiah points this out in these opening verses, that He was historically human. He he can be traced to a place in time and space. And yet, He was the arm of the Lord. He was Yahweh revealed to us. Well, though the people of that time didn't calculate correctly, look what the Bible says beginning in verse 4. It says, Surely He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we consider, there's a word very similar again, we added it up as if He was being stricken by God. But the truth was, He was being pierced for our transgressions. The word our here in these first few verses is a word of contrast. And it shows that even though we were calculating incorrectly, the truth was, He wasn't being punished by God for Himself. He was doing that on our behalf. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now let these words sink deep as you understand the the depth of of His suffering. The Via Della Rosa. This way of suffering that Christ entered into beginning on Palm Sunday. It started on Friday with this this trial that was a mockery. Look at the suffering He endured. It says there was punishment that was brought upon Him. Our peace was brought about by that punishment. By His wounds we are healed. Yes, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, uh, each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the word laid there? It's, it's, It's a word indicating a voluntary action that, that God chose to press upon Jesus. When Jesus in the garden, He said, Lord, not my will but Yours be done. There was this, this spiritual cooperation between the Father and the Son. And God pressed upon Jesus the iniquity of all of us. Sometimes we see the word lay and we think that it's, it's like, well, I'm just going to lay this on the table. I have a soft-spoken, uh, you know, general, easy... Uh, Action. There's nothing easy about this word lay. It is God pressing upon Jesus, uh, uh, leaning on Him, and within Jesus, finding satisfaction for the iniquity of us all. It reminds me of the verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses. What does it say? God made Him who knew no sin. To what? Be Sin for us. It doesn't say that He carried sin in a bag like a Santa Claus would. Ho, 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 to the cross I go. And I'm just going to plop your sin down and I'll die a few minutes. Man, that is so untheological. Jesus Christ, for three hours on the cross, became sin. He bore in His body something He had never known before. Something He bypassed in His virgin birth. He became a sin offering. And willingly, so that you and I could be brought back to God. Is, is there anybody like Jesus? No way. He stands alone, doesn't He? Look at some more verses here in these verses that talk about His historical punishment, and yet it's really His divine sacrifice. Look at verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Why? Because He was willingly sacrificing His life. He wasn't dragged to the cross. Yes, it was a mockery of a trial, Yes, it was, it was, it was excruciatingly painful. But he knew this was the plan of God for the redemption of mankind. And so he willingly went like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And that word there is plural, by the way. Speaking of the two thieves. I mean, when, when all was said and done, he was just hauled off the cross with other two criminals. I mean, to the, to the gallery there, it was like, well, we're done with those three. The next of the verse says, and with the rich in his death, speaking there of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who let those disciples borrow the tomb. Don't you love the way Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled? Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years prior to the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. And yet it plays out perfectly. It's exactly true. You can believe the Bible. Amen? And this is so well prophesied. It says he did, uh, he was with the rich in his death. He did no violence and nor was deceit in his mouth. And those are interesting words. You see the words violence, deceit, and mouth? They speak of, of actions, words spoken, and of heart issues. And in all three, Jesus was spotless. He did no wrong. He said no wrong. He had no wrong. There's nobody like Jesus, is there? Who was the exclusive Son of God. Yes, 100% human, but 100% God. And He came and then the the climax of His life was that He willingly sacrificed it for the iniquity of many. You know, I thought about how to relay the idea of willingness to you. And I don't know how to do that because no human uh, likes pain. It is the natural reaction to run from pain, right? I mean, I do and you do. No one likes pain. I was thinking this week about a time I tried to illustrate the idea of willingness to some teenagers. Um, it, was on a, it was on a sunrise service uh, and so I had just a few teens out in this area. Um, the sun was coming up. and just It was just a few, like a small group. And one of the kids in there was a recent convert. and He was a, probably an 8th or ninth grader. and Just on fire for God. Kind of a loudmouth kid, you know. But God was just changing little by little. And so I said, uh, prior to that, I said, Jamie, I'm going to have you come up and help me. I'm going to take your hand. And I'm going I'm to have a railroad spike. I'm going to put it right there about where they would have nailed Jesus to the cross. I'm going to put that spike right on your hand, okay? And... Um, he said, okay. And I said, then I'm going to take a big hammer. I got kind of a large hammer. And I said, I'm going to lay your hand down on the table. And I'm going to hold it there with a spike. But don't worry. I'm going to come down as hard as I can. I'm going to miss the spike. And I'm going to hit the table. Don't worry. He said, you promise you'll miss. I mean, now usually we say, don't miss. He said, promise me you'll miss, you know. I said, I will. Trust me. And we had a large picnic table. And there were some communion elements. And so it was kind of a way to, to show our kids in my group, you know, hey, uh, it's hard to endure pain. And, and the kids didn't know it. Just Jamie did. I said, don't worry. I've got a lot of room. I'll hold your hand down the spike. When I come down, I'll hit right behind it. And, and it'll show how hard it may have been to have that spike go through our hand. Well, we got there that morning. The sun's coming up. And we're reading some, we're reading some Scripture. And sure enough, Jamie comes forward. And I'm kind of playing this up. And kids, what if it was you? And what if you had a nail driven through your hand? And I put the spike on Jamie's hand. And I raised the hammer. And the kids are like, What's Todd going to do? He's gone lunatic. He's crazy. and That's probably true, by the way. And, and so his hand's down. I said, I mean, what if it was you? And I went like this, and I came down behind his hammer, uh, behind the spike, and Jamie jerked his hand away. He just jerked his hand away, and so it hit the table, and he pulled back. And I said, Jamie, I wasn't going to hit it. He said, I know, but I'm still scared. I thought about that all week. I thought, you know what? Even though he knew what I was going to do, he still wasn't willing. I mean, you just, you just don't endure pain for the fun of it. You just don't do that. Even though he knew there was no pain ahead, 
He was afraid. What if? Now, think about that as you read these verses and know that Jesus Christ knew what was coming. He knew that this trial would lead to scourging. And his face would be mutilated. And they would stretch his beaten body on the cross. And they would drive spikes in his hands and spikes in his feet. They would pierce his side. They would mock him. And for hours he would hang naked in ridicule and pain. And he never once fought back. I mean, there was no guy behind Jesus saying, Listen, it's not really happening. I'm going to miss the spike. He knew it was real. It was historically and humanly uh, factual. He was murdered in a bloody way. He died a death that no one should have to die. But he knew the only way for forgiveness was through the shedding of blood. And so on that Friday, what the world saw as a, a bloody murder was really a divine sacrifice. Amen. And by the way, Never be ashamed of the bloodiness of Christianity. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I know we want to make it more PC. We want to try to make it palatable. There's no way to make the crucifixion palatable. It's a gory day. It's the murder of God's Son. It's the day when they thought they were getting rid of a lunatic, but the truth was He willingly laid down His life. In fact, he said before his crucifixion, no man takes my life from me. What did he say in John 10? I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When you see all that they did to Jesus, you ought to realize he willingly endured that. There's nobody like Jesus, is there? See, I learned he's exclusive in the first three verses. In these next few verses, I learned he's willing. And then in these last few verses, I learned that he's powerful. Look what Isaiah 53.10 begins to teach us. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't a man's will. It wasn't the Jews or the Romans. It was God's will that he finds satisfaction in the death of his son, that the payment for sin in the perfect Lamb of God. And people say, well, God's not a loving God. You're crazy. God gave His one and only Son to die for the sins of those who didn't deserve it. That act alone proves He's a loving God forever. Look what it says here. It was the Lord's will to crush Him, to cause Him to suffer. And though the Lord makes His life a guilt offering. Do you see that phrase there? It could better be translated satisfaction offering. He's talked about it in Leviticus, I think chapter 5 or so. But it means that that God took Jesus and and satisfied His wrath through His Son. He said He makes His life a satisfaction offering. And now watch this. Everything changes. Suddenly the word will comes into play here. This is the first time in the chapter we've seen the word will. And notice all the times now we're going to see some future ideas laid out for us. Though His life is a guilt offering, He will see His offspring and prolong His days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. You mean it's not over? This is not the end? Not at all. He may have been historically dead. And He was. He was killed. But He's divinely alive. Amen? Now this is more about next week, so I'm not going to jump ahead too much. But He was taken off that cross. He was historically, physically dead. 
There was no life in his body. And for three days he lay in his tomb. But God raised him up on that third day for our justification. So while the world thought he was dead, God knew he would make him alive. And that same contrast, once dead, now alive, is what happens to all those who believe. We were once dead, amen, Ephesians 2 says, but now we're made alive. This is what he talks about here. Look what he says in verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify... What's the next word? Many. Hey, guess who that includes? You can say it. It includes me. It reminds me of Paul said in Romans. By the sin of one man, many are made what? Unrighteous. In other words, we've been doomed because of Adam. Thanks a lot, Adam. But guess what? Because of one, many will be made righteous. There is nobody like Jesus, is there? His death, His willing, exclusive, sacrificial death provides life for many people. I'm in the many. I hope you are as well. Look what He says. He will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, Therefore I will give Him a portion among the great. The word great, there's also uh, the word many. In other words, a great crowd. He will divide the spoils with the strong because He poured out His life unto death. That's an awesome phrase. I underline it. In other words, it's a contrast between two poles that are opposites. Here's life and here's death. And Jesus willingly gave up His life unto death so that many would go from death unto life. It says in the last part of the verse, He bore the sin of many and He made intercession for the transgressors. Wow, what a chapter. What a prophetic poem connected by the use of the word He that shows us an awesome picture of Jesus. The greatest proof that God is a loving God. Amen. So, so we've learned a couple of things this morning. He was historically human, yet divinely God. He was historically punished, but divinely sacrificed. And now He was historically dead, but divinely alive. Three words come to mind. I'm not going to show them behind me, but I just want you to be aware of them. He was exclusive. He was willing. And He was powerful. Isaiah 53 paints an awesome picture of the one and only Son that God gave. The proof that He's loving. Amen? And you say, Todd, that's awesome in Isaiah 53. Do we see that elsewhere in Scripture? Is there another place where the same traits of Jesus are explained and we get an understanding of who God is. There is. Let me show you one more scripture real quick. Just briefly look at Philippians chapter 2. Turn over there. It's just before the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2. I'll just briefly show you these same three things in Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is, by the way, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is actually what is known as a hymn of Christology. For any history buffs here, more than likely the early church quoted or sang these verses before most of their corporate gatherings. It was what they called a hymn of Christology. That's why in a lot of your translations it's kind of set apart as a poem, kind of like a song. Here's what Paul and the early church sang about Jesus. Look what it says. Verse 5, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, you see that? There's His deity declared, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto or grasped, but he made himself nothing. There it is, guys. He was God, but he made himself nothing. In other words, he became a man. So here's this historically human person who was divinely God. The same message again. 
He took the very nature of a servant and he was made in human likeness. Remember Isaiah 53? There was nothing special about him on the outside. And thus a lot of folks miscalculated who he really was. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Notice the intensive pronouns again, much like in Isaiah. You see that? Guess what? He willingly gave up his life. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death. Even death on a what? Cross. Paul's saying here, listen, it wasn't the fact that he just found a corner somewhere and died. He died in a horrible, murderous way. He died in a horrifically bloody way. But he humbled himself and he became obedient to death. There's the willing sacrifice again. Now look at the next few verses. So God has exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of whom? Jesus. Hey, can I have, have I told you yet there's nobody like Jesus? There is nobody like Jesus. He's exclusively the one and only Son of God. He's the willing sacrifice. He is the powerful, exalted one. Look what it says here. He's got the name above every name so that at this name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who's Lord? Jesus Christ. Not Harry Krishna. Not Joseph Smith. Not uh, Muhammad. Say it with me. Jesus Christ. There's nobody like Jesus. He's exclusive. He's willing and He's powerful. One day He'll be exalted. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then in that last phrase is, is very important. To the glory of God the Father. What have you learned throughout the last few weeks that about God's ultimate purpose? is to what? Bring glory to Himself from all nations, tongues, and tribes. Amen? Here it is again, folks. The, the, the reason, as Rick said, mission exists is because worship doesn't yet in all places. But one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God. When that happens from every tongue, whether it's from the, the tongue of a black or red or yellow or white person, God will get maximum, ultimate glory. That's why we, and this is kind of a side note here, but I like side notes. This is why we now should be thinking beyond ourselves. Thinking beyond our own borders. How could God use you today, this week, next month, to hasten and bring about the day in which every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to God's glory. You see, we have a part in bringing God great glory. And yes, it means inviting folks to next week, that 82% principle, but it also means thinking, God, would you send me somewhere? Would you take me to a people group that's never heard? Could that be what you want me to do so that one day when every knee and every tongue does confess and bow, you'll get maximum glory? God, is that what you want from me? Man, God's up to something awesome, isn't He? And He sent His Son as a picture of His awesome love. And one day that very same Son, Jesus Christ, will be magnified and exalted. And we will in one voice praise God and His Son, Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. He's exclusive. He's willing. And He's powerful. You say, Todd, that's a... That's a good picture of Jesus. Well, of course, it's from the Bible. Isaiah 53, Philippians 2. But you're saying, Todd, what do I do with that? It's Palm Sunday. I mean, what do I, what do I take from this? It's 2008. I'm leaving in a few minutes. And 
Do I just rejoice and be glad? Or what do I do? Well, i got an idea for you. Let the Bible answer that question. Philippians 2.5. You with me? Look at this verse. Your attitude should be the same as that of whom? Christ Jesus. Hey church, listen very carefully. If there's any week, listen very carefully. If there's any week, you should live sacrificially. It's this week. Historically and traditionally, this is the week when Christ entered Jerusalem with the goal being to sacrifice His life and give it away. Now, we should live that way every week. But this is the only week we're living today, right? This is this week in focus. So, hey, why don't we have the same attitude and let's live this week in a sacrificial way just like Jesus did. Let's not be afraid to identify with Him. To say, you know, I belong to the one and only Son of God. I believe in His death, His his, his murderous, bloody crucifixion. I embrace that and His burial and resurrection as the only way to heaven. I am not ashamed to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ. I'm not ashamed at all. And let's live just like He lived. Exclusively for, for God's purposes. Sacrificially for others. Working now and doing what we can so that one day when God brings all the nations together for His glory, we can say, Lord, thanks for, for letting me be part of that. Let's live like Jesus. I wonder if at the Last Supper, that's maybe not what he was trying to convey. Recall the Last Supper, would you? He had just left the, the garden. And there, were, there, were, there was conflict in his heart, no doubt. There was, there was, uh, he was on his way to prayer. There, there was just a lot of emotions as a man within him. So he's meeting with these disciples and he probably knows... At least divinely, they're, they're not all abandoning. But as a human, he's like, guys, these are my friends. What's going to happen? And it's in that conflict that he passes this bread in this cup. That he says, take this bread, it's my body. Drink this cup, it's my, it's my blood of the new covenant. He begins to explain, guys, I'm going to die. I think maybe what, one of the things he was trying to convey is this. Are you with me? Or are you going to run? Will you hang with me? Will you stay with me? He wanted them to identify. Now understand something. Communion is not a, the place where we're saved. There's nothing um, saving about the act of taking a bread and juice. Saving comes through believing, right? Christ saves in believing. But often in communion, it is an ordinance of the church. It is one of the ways that we express our identification with Jesus. In fact, it's one of, the, one of only two things the church is asked to do until he comes back. Observe the Lord's Supper. And so I think back to that time when he did the Last Supper with those disciples. I wonder if perhaps he was saying, Hey guys, this is the crucial hour. Don't abandon me. Can you really drink the same cup? You know that all eleven were eventually martyred. They did drink the same cup, didn't they? I think he was signifying early on, listen, if you drink from this cup, if you take of this bread, you are saying, I'm with you. Fortunately, all 11 were. They ran for a brief time, but they came back and all 11 were awesome heroes of our faith, aren't they? Today, as we observe the Lord's Supper, it's your opportunity not to be saved. Now, don't get me wrong. If your heart cries out to believe in the Lord and you're taking communion, man, God will save you, amen? He responds to the heart of belief. 
It's not a magical prayer or a certain ritual that, that God responds to. God responds to belief in the gospel, period. Whether you're in your chair, whether you raise your hand, whether you fall on your knees, those are all human ways we signify what God sees as the heart. So it may be that you come this morning and you say, God, I didn't know that you were the only one able to save. And maybe while you're taking it, you do say, Lord, I believe, then God will save you. But for those who are already believers, this is a way for us to say, I am willing to identify with the sacrificial life of Jesus. Because there's nobody like Jesus. There's just nobody like Him. And if He would live and die for the transgressions of many, the least I could do is live for Him. That's why I'm asking this week to have the same attitude Jesus did. And if you've ever lived sacrificially, I call you to do that this week. That's right. To live for the people in your neighborhood. More than perhaps you have before. We'll begin a little closer to home. To live for the people you eat dinner with. More than you ever have before. Well, why don't we make it a little more personal? To live for the person you sleep with. A little more than you ever have before. To be a little quicker to apologize. To be a little quicker to, to say, hey, I'm sorry. To give up your way. To defer. That's right. To sacrifice. This is the week when Jesus did that very thing. Let's live the same way He did. After all, there's nobody like Jesus. Amen. The exclusive, one and only Son of God who willingly laid down His life, bore the sin of many, and will one day be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God. I say this week, we do our best to honor Him as we live for Him.